And before we even get started, if you guys need a Bible, just raise your hand so we can bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us as we go along. And if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then keep your place there and also turn to Matthew 18. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 5 though. I titled my study this morning, Family Matters, and I know we've titled other studies in the past. We recently looked at First and Second Timothy and, and Titus, and, and we looked at the proper conduct in the church, but we didn't cover church discipline. It's not something that is normally taught in churches because it's, it's a delicate subject, and, and I feel it's a subject that the Lord has laid in my heart this morning, and uh, due to some recent events, we're going to look at what the Lord has to say about it. Uh, if you're new to the church, let me know this is not what we normally do. We're going to pick up next week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We're going to start First Peter next week, and I'm excited about that. That's going to be exciting. And so you can read First Peter chapter 1 next week, and we'll probably get to only the first few verses of that. But go ahead and read the whole chapter, and uh, that's exciting. That's next week. This week, uh, turn to First Corinthians chapter 5 first, and uh, join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in this place where we know that we have your word sitting on our laps, Lord, and that you want to take there what's in your word and put it into our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look to your word this morning, that we would have open hearts to receive all that you have for us, open to receive not only information, but application in our lives as well. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that shows us these things and the, the conviction sometimes that we need, the exhortation, the encouragement, the instruction. God, you're such a great God. We thank you for this awesome time of worship through a, through a song, Lord. And now we just continue to worship you through the study of your word. We pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, that they would come to know him as their Lord and as their Savior today. So we thank you for this time, Lord. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And God bless you. <laughs> there was a church service down south, and during the service there was an especially verbal and boisterous young child, a little boy, and, and he was slung under his father's irate arms and walking out with him. And no one in the congregation really raised an eyebrow until the child captured everyone's attention by crying out in this charming southern accent, Y'all pray for me now. <laughs> he was in trouble. It's frequently said that the only Bible the world will read is the daily life of the Christian. But what we know today is that the world needs the revised version. J.B. Phillips said, every time we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we mean that we believe that there is a living God able and willing to enter human personality and change it. Well, the church in Corinth needed some changes to take place. The worldly wisdom of the people of Corinth had crept into the church. So it was just a matter of time before it would be manifested itself in its behavior. Because false thinking leads to false living. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. There was this worldly view towards sin that has crept in. It wasn't just mental and intellectual, there was the moral and spiritual failings taking place. See, when the church tries to resemble the world, the world and the church is in trouble. And one of the growing problems we see in the church today is the increase of sexual immorality among Christians. 
I don't think a week goes by when we don't hear reports about churches struggling in this area. We have Christian leaders who have forsaken their wives. They've fallen into adultery or homosexuality or even allowing homosexuality into the leadership of the church. And sadly, sexual immorality was being accepted in this church at Corinth and Paul had to deal with it. I believe that if the church would deal with the sin that is within, we would never have to reason to fear the judgment from without, from, from the world. Let's look at the problem that was going on in Corinth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done, who has so done this deed. And the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. Paul begins by saying it's actually reported or it is being heard. So this was not some private sin, but was something that was being circulated around. Everybody in and out of the church was aware of it. They talked about it. They heard about it. It was common knowledge, Paul's saying. He says, what, what was it? He says that, that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, what do we mean when we say sexual immorality? Well, it's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our English word pornography from. It, it actually means to sell bodies. It's harlotry. It's, it's adultery and incest. It means fornication. To, to put it simply, it means sex outside of the bonds of marriage. Premarital, extramarital, molestation, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, whatever is not of marriage. And we read here that this sin was no longer a secret. See, that's where the church loses it. When the sin of the church becomes the talk of the town and the talk of the church, it's bad. We need to keep our mouths shut when things like this happen. Things that do not involve me, I should not listen to, and I certainly should not repeat it. If you're having struggle with someone, a person in the church, or problems in the church, you definitely don't want to share that with people in the world. You definitely don't want to post it on social media. Now, what was this problem in Corinth? Well, look at verse 1 again. There is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So this man has an immoral relationship, sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, with all the immorality in Corinth, surprisingly, this sin was the one sin that that was not even tolerated among non-Christians. You know, it's like when a child molester goes to prison. If the word gets out, they usually don't, right? You know, they're usually beat up or killed. It's one crime that's not tolerated. Paul here is amazed that the sin was the one that the world wouldn't put up with, but the church was acting as though it was no big deal. Folks, we should hurt over sin. It should break our hearts. But instead, Paul says here in verse 2, You are puffed up and not rather mourn that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Paul says, you've been, you're puffed up over this whole ordeal. 
In other words, they were filled with pride over the whole issue. They're proud. Oh, look how loving we are. Look how accepting we are. We just accept everybody just the way they are. What this was meaning was that the church was not going to judge the person involved in this sin. But they were accepting his sinful behavior. No judgment was their attitude. It's the age-old lie that says we're not to judge sin. No, God will take care of it, and, and we just need to work, uh, you know, just need to love one another and let God deal with, with them out. You know, it'll all work out. There's nothing further from the truth. Paul here is amazed. It says in verse 2, you should be mourning that this person involved in sin, and he should be removed from the church. That word for mourning there is, is the, like the weeping at a funeral over the loss of a loved one. You should have a broken heart over this person caught up in sin, weeping and mourning. We're told in James chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Again, my point is sin should break our hearts. We should never close our eyes to sin. We should never think lightly of it. We shouldn't wink at sin. Proverbs 10.10 tells us that. People who wink at wrong causes trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. We should find our hearts breaking over sin. The Corinthians instead found their hearts being open and accepting to the sin that was clearly sin according to the word of God. Now, we're talking about family matters here. Those in the Christian family of God. We're not dealing with non-Christians. We can't hold them to the Bible because they don't have the power of the new life in Christ. They're not part of God's family, so they have a different standard uh, to measure by. But to, to one who's in the church... It's clear what Paul is saying. They need to be dealt with. Paul says at the end of verse 2, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Listen, the Bible tells us what to do. Sin needs to be judged. That the persons involved should have realized that the sin was wrong and that if they persisted in that sin, they needed to be removed from the church. Certainly, they should have been confronted with the sin by the leadership of the church. Now you may say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I don't want to make any waves. I don't want to, I don't want to make any judgments. But look what Paul says. Look at verses 3 through 5. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paul is saying, even though I'm not there physically, I am there in spirit, meaning that his heart was in hearty agreement on what needs to be done personally and spiritually. Church discipline needed to be done. Oh, but that seems so harsh. Is this really what Jesus would do? Absolutely. Turn with me now in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 15. I may go back and forth a little bit from that, maybe 14, but you can find a starting point there. Because here in Matthew 18, Jesus is dealing with family matters. He's been talking to his disciples about humility. He said in verse 3 of of Matthew 18, unless you become like one of these, speaking of a young child that he called to himself, unless you become like one of these, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to become like little children. We need to humble ourselves. And it's not by coincidence that Jesus talks about humility right when he's about to address dealing with a sinning brother within the church. We need to approach it with humility and care and love. In fact, he makes a comparison with a little child in verse 14 of Matthew 18 when he says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that 
one of these little ones should perish. Just showing God's love for everyone, God's care for everyone. It's not God's will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants all to come to a saving knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, not everybody will, even though that's what God wants. Because God will never force His love on anyone, but that doesn't change the fact that God loves you. I mean, isn't that great to know that God loves you? Amen? You might want to hold back your amen, because Hebrews 12, 6 says, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Oh, But listen, the motive for the discipline is love. God loves us so much that when we sin, He's going to use circumstances, He's going to use people, He's going to use whatever it takes to get us back into that place of fellowship and repentance with Him. That's why I want you to look at verse 15 here. Jesus says, you're speaking of this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, and now again, we're talking about a fellow believer, not someone in the world, He's talking about a person we just read about in 1 Corinthians 5. He's talking about humility. He's talking about being great in the kingdom of God. And so he says, if your brother sins against you, then here's what you do. Here's my point. Biblical discipline is absolutely necessary in the body of Christ. This is what Jesus is setting forth here. Because when discipline happens, it does three things if you're taking notes. Number one, church discipline maintains the purity in the body. Maintains purity in the body. 1 Peter 1.16, we're told that the Lord says, Be holy, for I am holy. God desires us as His children to walk in the light as He is in the light. We hear a lot of preaching and teaching about God's love, His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. But what's missing in a lot of churches today is, is God's uh, is teaching on a pure lack of purity. Our living our lives holy before the Lord. And yet God desires holiness. Without holiness, it's just hypocrisy. We should be those that are increasingly becoming more holy in our lives. Increasingly our lives should be set apart. Lives where people can look at, at us and say, man, that, you guys are different. You're different than the world. And we're to encourage one another in love and good works. We're responsible to be obedient to God. See, God holds that in very high esteem for His church to be holy. If your life is one of purity, then as we gather together as a body of believers, as a church, then there's going to be purity. There's going to be holiness in the body. How do we maintain that purity in the body? By, by judging sin. We have to. Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, uh, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, the whole desire and discipline, both from God and from our brothers and sisters in the Lord, is to bring about restoration, to bring purity back in the body. So number one, church discipline maintains purity in the body. Number two, church discipline offers protection, offers protection and security to the body. Let me explain. You see, if one person goes astray and there's no discipline, there's no correction, no seeking to bring them back to that place where God would have them to be, that place of pursuing purity and holiness, then what happens is that sin is tolerated and you're just allowing anything and everything to go on in the church and it gets worse and worse and worse. And we see that in our society today. That's why Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. He's saying deal with the lump heads, okay? Deal with those who are in sin in the body of Christ so that we, become, we can become new lump heads, you know, pure lump heads. 
So again, discipline offers three things. Number one, it maintains purity in the body. Number two, it offers protection. Number three, church discipline affirms the value of every believer. It affirms the value of every believer. Look back at verse 12 and 13 of Matthew 18. Jesus says there, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. See, Jesus here is pictured as a good shepherd, leaving ninety and nine, seeking the one that has gone astray. That's our job as a church as well. To be the arms and the hands of Christ, seeking those that, that have gone astray, seeking to bring them back. We're not to despise other believers that are in sin, because they belong to God, but we, we're to take care of and care for one another. Loving one another and doing all that we can to bring about restoration. Sadly, it's been said that the church is the only place where they shoot their wounded. It ought not be. So now, in dealing with family matters, in dealing with the church discipline, we know it's good because it maintains purity, it offers protection, it affirms the value of every believer. Yet, how do we do it? How do we handle such sensitive issues as this, tough issues as this? I love that God's Word tells us. Jesus tells us. Look now at verse 15 again, Matthew 18. Jesus begins by saying, If there's a brother who sins, and this would apply to a sister as well, if there's a brother or sister in the Lord who sins, that word sin means missing the mark. Now, obviously, we're not to become sin spies. Okay, as soon as service is over, I'm going to go down. I'm going to find that brother who's sinning. I'm going to follow him home and see if he's saying, I've caught you. You did this. Well, you know, whatever. No, we're not... We're not to be sin spies, but we are to be those that as we are living our lives, seeking the Lord, praying, seeking the lives of purity, that when something comes our way, either we find out about something or we see someone who we know is a brother or sister in the Lord in a place that is sinful, we need to deal with it. Now, not according to your opinion, but sin according to the word of God, what God calls sin, not not Christian liberty, but sin. Well, that person was rude to me today, so I need to throw him out of the church. No, okay, that's an opinion. The person may have just been had a, a bad day, something on their mind, you misunderstood their motives. But if it's sin, it needs to be confronted. God encourages that. More of your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If they've done something against you, then you're to confront them because a flagrant sin in their life is a sin against God and it's a sin against the body of Christ. Now, when we confront them, we're to do it quickly. We're to deal with it quickly. See, if we don't deal with it quickly, then it's like having a broken bone in your body. It's like saying, yeah, my leg is completely broken. A femur snapped, but, but, but I'm going to wait a couple of weeks. I'll get around to dealing with it. No, you wouldn't do that, would you? No, because it would heal them properly. You know, I have to tell this story because... It was brought up to me while I was on vacation. You know, whenever you get around people that knew you before you were saved, they tend to bring back those stories that you like to forget about. And, uh, well, my in-laws, they had a cat named Samantha. And Samantha, a black cat, somewhere along its life, it got hit by a car. And its back leg got, got broken, got messed up. Now, when it happened, we don't know. You know, how it happened, we don't know. But all we know is that the cat would come around periodically with his back leg sticking out off to one end, you know, and kind of walk like this around like that. And my brother-in-law reminded me that whenever I saw the cat, I would walk behind it with my leg like that sticking out. I'd make fun of the cat and, and I'd be making fun, you know, tell my in-laws, you know, still haven't fixed the cat yet, have you? And this cat was just like, you know, okay, it's a cat. Okay, I'm not a cat lover. You guys know that, you know. Um, 
So I made fun of the cat. But, but, uh, but it, it, it's great to illustrate this point here. That's what happens when you refuse to deal with a break, a problem. When you refuse to deal with sin properly, it heals improperly. We don't want to do that. You want to deal with it right away so you can get back on your feet moving again so it's healed in the right way. That's the way the body of Christ works. We are the body of Christ. And if there's a problem, if there's a break, if there's a sin, a conflict, we need to deal with it and we need to deal with it quickly. And we're, going, we're to go to that person and tell them what the problem is. In fact, that's what Jesus commands here. Look at all of verse 15 here. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. He tells us, tell him his fault. It comes from the Greek word that means to bring to light, to help him to see. See, sometimes when, when, when we sin, the person could actually be unaware of the fact that he's sinning. Maybe he's blowing it. You know, maybe he's a new Christian. Maybe he just didn't know. Maybe he didn't see this in his life. So we're to go to them in humility and love, love believing the very best, hoping the very best, because that's what love does. And we're to go to them with that love attitude, not with not to salt them. We're going to, to love with the purpose of bringing restoration. Restoration not only with you, if they perhaps sinned against you personally, but also restoration within the body and certainly with the Lord. And Jesus says, we're to go to them alone. Now, I want you to note that if there's ever a word you ought to underline and remember, it is verse 15 in Matthew 18, where you go between you and him Alone, Jesus says that because he doesn't want us going and blabbing it all over the place. Oh, I got to get counsel with these 20 or 30 people. I mean, uh, I need to recruit 40 or 50 people to pray with me. And of course, during the prayer time, I need to tell them exactly what they did to me and what's going on and, and how horrible they are to me. So they know what to pray for. In this case, no, you don't. No, you don't. In fact, you're commanded not to. Our instructions are, if you have a problem, you should go to the person by yourself, prayed up, in humility, like Galatians 6 once said, restoring such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So, you're prayed up, you're ready to go, you pray, Lord, help me to go with humility, help me not to judge, help me to, to not accuse, but to go with an attitude uh, of humility and private. If you want someone to pray for you, with you on that, I encourage that. You just tell them, hey, I have a situation, would you pray for me on the situation? And leave it at that. You know, you know, if you want to recruit people to pray, that's where, where it's all they need to know. God knows all the details of the situation. God is honored and he's pleased when you don't gossip and backbite in the name of prayer. When you go to love this person and you talk to them one-on-one. Not going with accusations, but with observations. You know, attitude makes all the difference in the world when you go to somebody. And maybe you've experienced, I know I have, if people come to me in two ways over the years, with a bad attitude, accusing and anger, or with a right attitude and love. You know, the right way, I mean, the way that I respond is if it's a heart of love and, and, and a right attitude for that person. See, I think it's important to be like Jesus in the same way he corrected the churches. Remember Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when he's talking to the churches, he's bringing about the good things that they've done. Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 through 4 says, in the New Living Translation, I know all the things you do, I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or or each other as you did at first. You you see, I like that. Jesus is saying, man, you're doing great. I I, I mean, when it comes to hard work, man, you're enduring patiently. 
You don't tolerate evil people. You've done great, great many things. I appreciate that. Thank you. And, and, and i got to tell you this. You're doing great, but, but I have a problem. You need to return to your first love. See, here's my point. When you approach someone with a problem and you seek to restore them, it, we would do well to follow Jesus' example. You know, approach them in love. Share with them the good things they're doing and then share with them what's going on. For the whole purpose, Jesus says, if they hear you, you gained a brother. That word for gain in verse 15 is a word financial gain or it's making a gain in the marketplace. In other words, all of God's children are valuable. And when one is restored, this is what Jesus is talking about, then the kingdom is gained or profited. You know, we just can't look at a situation like this and says, oh, well, that's just the way it goes. They're out of here. Another one bites the dust, you know. Another one gone, another one gone, another one bites the dust. Don't want to do that. No, we need to do all that we can to gain them back. And again, here's why. Because God wants His church body to be holy, so we need to reach out to those around us. Now you may say, well, what if I do that, and they still don't respond, they still don't want to talk about it? Well, at that point, that's when you need to look for help from others. I mean, it, it's at that point that we go to another brother or sister, whatever the case may be, preferably one who knows this person well, even respects them. But let me say this, before you do, give the person some time. After you've had that private one-on-one conversation, if they don't seem to respond right away at that time to repent, and things don't clear up, give them some time. Don't say, oh, I'm done, you know, no more, he, he didn't repent. Sometimes, you know, we don't hear things right, right off the bat too well, especially when it comes to correction. You know, we don't like to hear it at first, but then after a while the Holy Spirit starts tugging on our hearts and knocking on our door and saying, you know, what he was saying was true. What he was saying was of me, and, and you need to deal with that. And sometimes that takes a little bit of time. But if you've given them some time, you know, and they don't repent, and you still see they're going down that path of destruction, stuff is still going on, uh, then, then, according to Jesus' words here, you need to look for some help. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now let me say this. For those of you that are the recipients of someone coming to you and asking you to go with them to this other person, and they come to you and they say, hey, I want you to go with me to this brother or sister. Here's what they've done. As they begin to tell you about the situation, you have a responsibility before you even hear one word, bad or good, before you hear any problem about that person, before one word is spoken, you have the responsibility to say, hey, wait a minute. Before you share anything with me, Have you gone to that person first? Have you gone to that person one-on-one? I don't want to hear a word unless you've gone to that person. That's your responsibility when someone shares something with you. Let me say this again as clear as I can. It is gossip unless they've already gone to this person, unless, unless they've taken the first step. So you need to ask, have you gone to this person? If they have not, then you need to tell them, you go first to that person involved. Before you tell me anything, I'll be praying for you, and then you can come back to me if it's not resolved. Now, if you've done it the right way up to this point and the person still hasn't responded, then you need to bring someone else in. Preferably, as I said, someone who's friends with them, someone they know loves them. You share with them and you say, I know you love so-and-so and I know you're close to them. Uh, here's the situation. Here's what go- what's going on. I've talked to them already. So now I need you. Would you go with me to talk with them? And you can get two. Jesus says three at the most. Don't get a gang or a group. Jesus didn't say get 20 or 30 people to go and beat the living daylights out of this person. He says take two or three and go and pray. 
Now, if you're ever in this situation and you are one of the two or three that's going to that person, then you go with them. But before you say anything, listen to the two of them dialogue. Hear what's going on. See what's being said. Because it could be very helpful sometimes to sit back and see the dynamic that's going on there. That's why we're told to take two or three because it may be that you both need a little help, need a little correction. But again, you're to confront them once again with their sin. Now let me say this one more time. This is all for the purpose of restoration so that broken bone can bring about healing. It's not to prove that that you're right and they're wrong. It's not to get even with them because they sinned against you. We're to humble ourselves and seek restoration. And if you do it correctly, it requires paying attention and listening and being gentle. That's step number two. Now, if they still don't hear you, number one, you've gone to them one-on-one. Number two, you've had two or three people to hear hear them out, a couple of friends with you. If they still refuse, look at verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Then you tell it to the church. That's step number three. Well, you're a part of the church. Now, now I believe the first part of telling it to the church means you tell it to the leadership of the church, the elders of the church, those men that have been given gifts and leadership of looking after the spiritual condition, condition of the church. Let them hear the matter clearly. And then when we, as church leadership, reach out to this individual one more time to see if they will listen even to the church. And if they still don't repent, then sadly, according to Jesus' words here, that person needs to be removed from the fellowship of believers. See, this person is in sin and he's continuing to come to church. He's not listening to you one-on-one. He's not listening to you two or three. And now he's continuing to come to this church. The church has come to him and we need to remove him. Now remember what we already looked at in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. But Paul went on to say in, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about the sinning brother, he said this, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Let me read that again. I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, a covetous, or an idolater, or a violer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, and not even to eat with such a person. Paul is making it very clear. Have nothing to do with a professed believer who is in habitual sin and rebellion against God. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 17. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What were a heathen and a tax collector treated like by the Jewish mindset? Somebody they didn't hang out with. Somebody that wasn't a part of them. Here's my point. We don't want professed believers coming in and playing Christian while they continue in habitual sin and rebellion against God. Listen, if you're a non-believer and professing non-believer, you are absolutely welcome here. In fact, we want you here. We want you to hear the word of God. It's our prayer that you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And if you're here this morning, uh, that's our prayer. But if you're a Christian here this morning, then hopefully you're living a holy and pure life. But if you're living a flagrant, open rebellion against God, and a brother or sister says to you, you need to deal with this area, and you refuse, and two or three are called and they're telling you you need to deal with this area, 
and you refuse. And it's brought to the leadership of the church and you're told you need to deal with this area. It's serious. And if you don't respond to that, then we need to remove you from the fellowship of the church. This is not the place to play Christian. Because if we're all play acting here, then the little leaven leavens the lump and, and that's what Paul says. See, we're talking about 1 Corinthians 5 here. This person was in the church, wanted to continue in fellowship in the church and continue in his sin. God's word says, no way, Jose. I don't know if his name was Jose, but, but, but. He says, no, the guy's got to go. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Listen, if we remove someone from fellowship of the church and tell them they're not welcome to come back here anymore, we're doing so so that they, they will they, they, to, to repent. We're not saying, hey, I'm done with you and so is God. That's not what we're saying. No, it's saying God is going to deal with you now. We're no longer dealing with you. You're in God's hand. God is going to deal with you. You see, until that person realizes their need for repentance and repents, he or she is not welcome here just to come in and play Christian. They need to see the seriousness of their sin, the gravity of their sin. And they need to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The idea there is to let them loose, to go stuff themselves with sin, knowing that at some point they're going to finally hit rock bottom. Listen, the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. A season. At one point, this person will finally realize that the sin did not fulfill what he thought it would fulfill or she thought it would fulfill, but it actually made them feel worse. That's what the meaning here is behind deliver such a one Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That this person recognizes that outside of his relationship with God, living here as sin is no fun. I have no joy, no peace. I miss my relationship with God and my fellowship with the saints. I'm done living for myself. I repent. That really is our prayer. And when we remove someone from fellowship, we are still to exhort them when we run into them to repent. But we are to remove ourselves from fellowship with them. And here's the thing. You run into them, you can say to them, hey, you know what? Until you're right with God, I'm praying for you. I love you. I'm willing to talk with you about repentance. Anytime you're ready to get things right, and and, and I pray that we can talk about that. But until then, we're not going to be hanging out together. I can't have fellowship with you. We can't be hanging out together. And you say, well, well, come on, Tom. Those are tough words. That's not taught in churches today. And you're right. It's not taught in a lot of churches. There are a lot, not, there, there are a lot of churches that will not exercise church discipline because they're more interested in numbers than there are souls in the purity of the body of Christ. God forbid that we would ever become, that would ever become the priority in, in this church, to gather a crowd. The priority of this church is a word of God and holiness in the body of Christ, and may it continue to be our priority. See, we all have a responsibility to exercise discipline and love, and too few churches are not concerned with discipline, and, and they're just, if they are, they, they, it's in principle, but not in practice, or, or they just don't do it properly. They don't do it with, with, with restoration in mind. Again, we need to deal with it quickly. If you have an infection, you don't just sit around, oh, it's going to go away. No, you want to deal with it immediately. And if someone is involved in, in sin, listen, again, they may never even realize what they're doing is sin. But we need to, to lovingly, face-to-face, preferably, confront them in humility, considering ourselves. We could be in the same place, lest we also be tempted for the purpose of gaining them and bringing them back into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Folks, this is not an option. This is what Jesus is saying here. It's a command. He desires holiness. And so we need to help one another. 
We need to exhort one another. We need to be praying for one another. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. It brings division. It brings contention in the body of Christ. May God help us to have the courage to be obedient to the commands that He's given us here and to put these things into practice. I want to close with this. I'm going to ask Jacob to stop the recording of my study. 